Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John and Isander El Amrani, Regional Director of the Middle East and North Africa Program at the Open Society Foundations, reflect on the Arab Spring and what officials and pundits got wrong. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Isander Amrani is the Regional Director for the Middle East North Africa region at the Open Society Foundation. Prior to joining Open Society, Isander served as the North Africa Project Director for the International Crisis Group, uh, covering everything from Morocco to Egypt. I first encountered him as an early blogger on the Arabist, a blog he started back in 2003. Isander, welcome to Babel. Happy to be here, John. Looking back, what are you proudest about what you got right about the Arab Spring and, and what are you most embarrassed you got wrong? Well, let me start with the most embarrassing. I think uh, like everyone who was caught in that moment, I was over-optimistic, over-enthusiastic, uh, too caught up in the moment to perhaps see down the line that that it wouldn't be as easy as uh, it looked as those Haiti days in early 2011. I think what... Some of us got right, though, is in terms of seeing it coming, maybe not knowing exactly that it would be the type of momentous world event that, that, that it was and happening in so many countries at a time, but the sense that we had in the 2000s that, that this can't hold anymore, that there will be a shock. And in Egypt, in, in, in particular, as the Mubarak regime was clearly nearing its end, that there was a lot of anxiety about what would happen after Mubarak, that the role of the army would probably once again be important. I think a lot of us saw that coming. And, and you know, looking back, of course, I think also maybe one, one of the things that we underestimated as people who are political observers, political junkies, and is that the public has a limited tolerance for the massive political disruptions that took place in those years between 2011 and 2013. And you were in Egypt when the when Abdel Fattah al-Sisi came to power, pushed out the, the government of uh, Mohamed Morsi. Did you sense that this was a restoration by the intelligence services at the time? Did it feel like the public had just run out of patience with the ineffectiveness of the Morsi government. I mean, how did it feel? And then looking back, do you think something else was going on than how it felt at the time? I've never been a believer in the in the theory that uh, the overthrow of Morsi and the restoration of authoritarianism in Egypt was a long and carefully planned uh, plot. There were Various actors, the army, the intelligence services, uh, parts of the business elite, uh, parts of the judiciary uh, in Egypt that did plot together to make it happen. That's that's true and, and, and to some degree behind the scenes, but maybe a month or two in advance. I don't think you can underestimate the degree of incompetence and lack of foresight of the Muslim Brotherhood and its leadership, including President Morsi, in setting up, setting itself up to fail. The army would have been perfectly happy to come to an arrangement with them. Uh, I think that's 
partly why the the opponents of the Muslim Brotherhood found it an opportunity to to get the army then to to switch sides. You have been critical of foreign governments a lot on your blog and in other places. As you look back, what do you think that Western governments got right and what they you think they got wrong responding to the Arab Spring? And do you think they overestimated their influence or underestimated it? I think overall they underestimated their influence, and this was particularly the case with the Obama administration. The Obama administration had a, a view of the Arab Spring that basically it can't really affect things that much there, that it should get out of the Middle East as much as possible because it's, uh, I think it viewed it as a trap. I think a lot of the diplomatic community was exhausted with uh, what was happening in Egypt, much like Egyptians were. It was too dismissive of the, let's say, liberals in Egypt who, who were warning about what the, the dangers of what the Muslim Brotherhood was doing and had, had not really seen until fairly late what the army was doing. The example I always give or the parallel I always give is that at the end of the day, not to mention, of course, internal debates within the Arab, within the, the Obama administration, the Obama administration constructed its shoulders in June 2013. I didn't see the, the, the coup in Egypt as a, as a pivoting point that, that would really fundamentally change the region and, and would lead a, a, an authoritarian backlash. You have a momentous event and you decide to stay, stand back and wait to see what's going to happen rather than try and influence the, the, the unfolding of these events. But the US government cut off aid to Egypt after the coup. It cut off some aid to Egypt. It didn't cut off uh, uh, all aid to Egypt and refused to declare it a coup. And so there, there was a limit, I think, to what they were willing to do. You know, rhetorically, the administration saw what was happening as, as a, a major event. But in policy terms, I'm not sure that they really put the thought and effort and, and, and resources into trying to help this region through its transition. Not, not that this is an American responsibility, of course. I think that would have looked like a lot more hand-holding with politicians in the region, at least to, 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 to encourage transitions that are not just democratic in the, in the electoral sense of the world, but also that are plural, uh, that are reasonable transitions that are like what Spain or Portugal went through in the, in the 70s, uh, maybe negotiated to some degree. I think a more hands-on role was, uh, would have been uh, desirable, uh, more political implication, not necessarily more spending, more money, or certainly use of military force. You know, th- th- there, was, there was always the impression of a certain amount of detachment from, from, from the Obama administration and uh, Again, putting it in context, whose strategic priority was was pivoting to Asia, uh, was looking at the next 20 or 50 years globally. I think that tended to underplay what was happening in the region. Well, well, I was certainly critical of the way the Obama administration responded. It also seems to me it's hard to to figure out who the partner would have been. You had a, a Muslim Brotherhood government 
that was not very interested in process. And it seems to me that, that, that throughout the message from the Obama administration was the way this has to work is through processes rather than outcomes. The outcomes will follow, but the first thing is to create a process. And if we want to get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood, there's a process to get rid of it, rid of them. We call it elections. Uh, and it seems to me that the, the, the challenge they had was they were interested in trying to get people to believe in process and neither liberals nor conservatives nor Islamists were interested in that message at all. They all wanted outcomes. I mean, is that, does, is that not how you think things are unfolding? I think that's partly true, but the, the, the whole point was that process isn't everything, is that the reality is that these, these things evolve in uh, highly charged contexts and you can do things to diffuse tensions. And, you know, it, it's not true that the Obama administration stayed aloof on every issue. I mean, for instance, it worked carefully and hard to ensure that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power in Egypt would not be prejudicial to uh, the security of Israel or right. the Camp David agreements. You know, that's one thing where it put significant amount of effort to guarantee. And, and of course, it was, it was what the Brotherhood had to offer to, 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 to Egypt's Western partners as a guarantee. Uh, but I think that was missing, that, that was looking at a few of the, of the details and missing missing the bigger picture. Uh, you know, in Egypt, could, could they have gotten involved in uh, parallel diplomacy and track two efforts or put real pressure on Egypt, whether post-coup or, in, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that these are easy decisions and that they should have seen it coming. I, I, I'm saying I think that there was a, a general reluctance to uh, to get involved. I think a lot of people were very optimistic about how liberalism would be the the order of the day after Mubarak fell, what do you think liberals have learned throughout the region from the way the last 10 years have unfolded? I think if you, you know, if you mean liberal in the sense, not of basically social democratic, uh, open to pluralism, wanting, wanting to see at least a, a gradual improvement in human freedom in the region, I think one of the big lessons is, at least to me, is there's way too much of a disconnect between those liberal, often elites, and the average population and their concerns. And that's a reflection that this is one of the most unequal regions in the world. There were factors such as, you know, if you take a country like Egypt, at least 50% of the country, uh, of the population of the country, working in, in the informal sector that just gave people different priorities, stability for them enabled day-to-day -day living and earning. That wasn't the case for most of the middle-class, upper-middle-class uh, self-described liberals. That there's a lot of work to be done. And here again, pointing one of the reasons we can point to Tunisia as a relative success is that that work was done to bridge ideological gaps between Islamists and secularists. I think that, that, that that's a hugely important part of the equation, just because the polarization that existed then still exists today in a place like Egypt is, is a huge part of the problem. It's good to have, have thought about you know, how you build power if for your values, if you, if you're, whether you're liberal, leftist, Islamist, and so on. But 
in a way that not just to grab power as soon as the opportunity presents itself, but to to, to build it long term, to build a social base. Uh, I don't think that you can say almost anywhere in the region today that you have a liberal camp with a strong social base. So I think you have to recognize that that Islamist parties and movements have invested considerable amounts of resources, time into building social bases, not you know not just ideological ones, and that's something that needs to be done. In, in your judgment, have those Islamist trends played themselves out? The Muslim Brotherhood, because principally because of its its utter failure in Egypt, both to govern and to stay in power, and and governments increased hostility to the Brotherhood, Salafi movements because they were discredited by uh, the Islamic State. Have have we seen sort of all the movements fall apart, or do you think they're still in the embers of the Brotherhood experience, the Salafi movement, the liberal experience, something that could come back? I think ideologically, there's something there that, that can come back, absolutely. Reflection of the sociological reality that in much of the region, religion is deeply core, the core to to people's identity. So, 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 so it's there's something there. So, so I wouldn't say that the Brotherhood has failed as an ideology. The Brotherhood has failed as an organization. It's been essentially destroyed, especially in Egypt, as an organization. And that particular strand of Islamism perhaps has failed to create enough diversity in its ranks to, to be able to evolve and have that conversation. The, the, the evolution of Nahda in Tunisia that happened largely in exile in the 1980s, 1990s, and in, in England and France never happened to the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. I, I, I think partly they were as ossified as, as the Mubarak regime, and that's, that's, that's one reason that they failed. But if you look at Islamism today across the region, and here I'm, I'm, I'm excluding the, the violent manifestations like Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, but all the various strands of nonviolent Islamism is still very rich, is still very much alive. Salafism and cer- certain strands of Salafism in particular, Matkhali Salafism, are on the rise across the region. Uh, you think potentially yeah, politically potent as well? I think politically potent, just not necessarily in an electoral sense. I mean, if you take a look at a place like Libya, where the Madhali Salafists have proliferated and really taken control of a lot and accumulated tremendous amounts of social capital, both in East and West Libya, because there's a vacuum there. And, and they've been able to fill that vacuum. That's not politically relevant today because when you look at a political leadership, you're seeing on one side, let's say General Haftar, on the other side, uh, various politicians uh, in the West of the country. But tomorrow, you know, they are rebuilding the, the, the social base of, of, of that country. They are installing themselves often, not just in militias, of course, but, but also as, as the people with uh, the most uh, social capital. Final question. What trends do you see in the Middle East now that are underappreciated? I mean, you, you talked about there was a, a general sense that the center couldn't hold in, in 2010 that led to the Arab Spring. What do you think people aren't seeing now that they need to be seeing? There's a number of things. Probably the biggest one that, although it's noticed, is still underappreciated and understudied is uh, the impact of the demographics of the region, that this is a very young region that's 
hit about what, maybe uh, five, 10 years ago, it's peak youth phase. That's, it's now moving towards being older, but going to be an impact of that probably in the next 20 years. That's going to be uh, significant if only just you have so many new uh, entrants on the, on the job market come. I think you have a lot of the old idols uh, have fallen, certainties about the, much of the political culture of the Arab world pre-2011 was stuck in amber around certain certainties, you know, Arab nationalism, certain form of, of Islamism. So that's changing very fast. We're seeing it with, uh, I mean, for instance, with like him or dislike him, the Abraham, the Abraham Accords have not gotten massive outrage from the Arab street as once would have been the, the uh, received wisdom. Does that surprise uh, you? No, 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 not at all. I, and I think for various reasons, but probably the most important reason is, 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 is that the Palestinian cause itself has been adrift. The Palestinian leadership has been adrift for many years. Uh, it, it wasn't surprising to see people rally around the Palestinian cause when it had leaders, not just Arafat, but even many others that could symbolize something to people, but you don't have that today. The evolution of that of that youth, youth bulge, I think, is going to be an interesting thing to watch. I think that there's changes discreetly underway in uh, social mores, social relations, uh, uh, even if uh, religion remains uh, a very important part of people's identity. The sense that I have is that it's evolving in, in um, multiple contradictory ways. In part, I think that's that's a a return to, uh, or, or sorry, the the um, the impact of the internet, uh, more exposure to the rest of the world. So this is more is in terms of gender and sexuality, or, or in terms of gender terms and of... sexuality, yes, but but in terms of also being more open to not not everyone is going to be uh, understanding religion in the same way, or being more open to to not being publicly seen as biased all the time and so on. I, th I think you, you see a few trends of that. It's contradictory. Huh? I think what you also have, because the discrediting of the religious establishment in many countries, you have people looking for alternatives. In some cases, those alternatives may be radical, maybe various forms of Salafism and so on. But in other cases, there may be people trying to be more, to be religious differently. I think that there is a, 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 a search for a more palatable uh, uh, and I'm struggling to find the right word, but perhaps uh, a relatable form of religiosity or also not being religious. I mean, these are things that are very hard to measure. So it's partly, you know, an impression, but I think that's, that's moving. I think on the other hand, especially because you have several countries where the economies have collapsed, the state authority has collapsed, you have more of a certain type of conservatism, but it's not a religious conservatism or ideologically religious. It's more has to do with social relations. You know, in so many countries across the region, you have a resurgence of uh, tribalism, for instance, and that sometimes, especially superficially, it looks like people are becoming more religiously conservative, but actually they're just becoming more socially conservative. And, and you have a, a resurgence of what are rural values often. Uh, at the expense of more cosmopolitan urban values.
It was never a homogeneous Arab world, but it's much less homogeneous now than it was probably 20 years ago. But you're also describing societies that are becoming more diverse internally with the demonstrated absence of political processes to try to to at least create internal coalitions between different points of view. Yes, that brings us back to the problem is that, you know, I think one of the big lessons that many have learned about the last decade is that the, the revolutionary radical method of change is extremely dangerous and will probably backfire. But we come back to the problem is, is, is there a reform? Is there a credible reform path ahead? Can we form those, those coalitions that, without upsetting the establishment too much, allow for, for gradual change? And so, you know, we've come back to that question. There are places where that's a possibility. You know, I come back to Tunisia. Algeria is struggling through that in complicated ways at the moment. Morocco is, has had that premise, that promise for a while, but in some ways in the last five years has gone backwards because of the general regional author, authoritarian backlash. It really depends from place to place. But I think fundamentally is the way you framed it is the question, can you see a coalition emerge organically that allows for that kind of change? that allows for elite rotation, that allows, you know, that, that prevents the same people holding on to the power, and then fewer and fewer people holding on to all the power all the time, that allows for a circulation of ideas also, or will things become ossified again? That to me is, is the fundamental question, and it's not strictly one of more or less democratic or whether you'll have free and fair elections or not. It's a more complicated question of social relations and, and how different elements of society have buy-in into the system at the end of the day. Sandra Amrani, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. My pleasure. Then, John, Natasha, and I look at the Middle East 10 years after the Arab Spring and explore its legacy. So the so-called Arab Spring, once called the Arab Awakening by many, captured the imagination of the American people. And yet it didn't turn out quite how the media, academia, and think tank worlds expected it to. Ten years on, what does the region look like? Which countries ultimately saw change, and has that change lasted? You know, interestingly, the first country that, that underwent change, Tunisia, is the only one that you could argue really moved in the direction people wanted to move in. Tunisia is still really messy. But there seems to be more inclusive government instead of an authoritarian government. There seems to be more social activity. The economy is in trouble and politics are messy. But it's a lot better than a lot of other countries like Yemen and Syria that fell into civil war. Yeah, I would say all of the the countries that participated in the Arab Spring to one degree or another saw change. It wasn't necessarily the change that was desired but there was change of some sort, except for perhaps the, the Gulf countries. I would have to say that as an impartial observer, I wasn't terribly optimistic in the first part. But I would have to say that I was, I was perhaps naively optimistic when I saw you know, Mubarak step down and we watched the National Democratic Party building uh, burn down in 2011, uh, which had been a symbol of oppression for decades. That said, after decades of of dictatorship, civil society needs time to coalesce and to organize and to make lasting change. So in that degree, I'm also a bit optimistic for the future that this is just one phase of of many, hopefully. 
for some of these revolutionary movements to establish, partly as, as Natasha suggested, because there really wasn't a well-developed civil society. A lot of these movements weren't able to institutionalize very much because one of the consequences of decades of authoritarianism in the Arab world had been a weakness in institutions. But it, it seems to me that the, the most important thing in all this, and it's true in, in revolutions and it's true in independence movements as well, you don't know how it's going to come out when you start. You decide it's worth rolling the dice. And rolling the dice means accepting the possibility that it's going to come up the wrong way. I think if you look at the Arab world now, when you talk to people in Jordan or Lebanon or elsewhere, the enthusiasm for revolution has been diminished because of a sense that the odds are stacked against success. And that wasn't the sense that people had in 2011. There's a sense of we don't have to bother to compute the odds. Anything's better than this. And people look at what's happened in Syria. They look at what's happened in Yemen. They look at what's happened in Libya. And they say, you know, this may stink, but there may be things that are worse. And we do have to weigh that in our mind. And, and Sandra suggested that as well. I do wonder what would have happened in places like Syria or even Libya without foreign interference. And that's, you know, international, so beyond the region, but also regional interference. Moaz Khatib, who was one of the, the first sort of formal leaders of the Syrian opposition, however legitimate that's been in the past few years, gave a really impassioned speech uh, before resigning. I think it was, you know, early on, 2013 or something where he cited his fear that because of this interference, that the Syrian revolution was doomed. And that with this foreign interference, soon uh, Syria would just essentially become a proxy war, which is essentially what it has become almost a decade on. But, you know, there was an inability of the Syrian opposition to unite that significantly predated the Russian intervention. I mean, the, the people who were trying on an unofficial basis to help work with Syrian opposition figures to come together had a horrible time. And this was characteristic in Libya. It was, it was in a lot of places that, that the opposition was so fragmented that it became hard for, for them to, to be a replacement because they're busy fighting with each other rather than uniting to come together and, and create a new government. And, and what's interesting is that the movements that do tend to be well-organized enough or have the broad social support needed, the experience providing services typically are Islamist groups. And that's exactly what happened in, in Egypt, uh, whether or not the U.S. administration liked it or not. And yet um, their performance was miserable, you know, partly by ineptitude and partly because people were trying to frustrate them. I don't think anybody expects when you come to power, your adversaries stop trying to frustrate you. You have to triumph over their efforts to frustrate you. But the, the Muslim Brotherhood's performance was poor. And the hostility that the Egyptian public has to the Brotherhood now is partly a consequence of a coordinated campaign against the Brotherhood. But I think in larger measure, a consequence of people looking and saying, these guys turned into the same miserable politicians as everybody else. They were busy lining their own pockets. They were taking care of their own people. They had less competence than the people they replaced. 
And so where's the advantage? I mean, they managed to shred their own sense of competence because given the scale of government, of governmental powers, they weren't able to perform. So which, if any, of these factors we're discussing are unique to the Middle East? I think there are several factors that might be somewhat unique to the Middle East. There's always been a heavy involvement of foreign actors in politics. And this goes globally, but I think it's it's even more pronounced in the Middle East, um, especially in the 1800s and the, the first half of the 1900s. But I think even as the U.S. withdraws sort of from the region, this will continue to be the case. And I'm not sure U.S. policymakers have quite completely fleshed out the sort of the implications of that in terms of not just human rights and migration, but also the global economy. You know, the other issue is, is the oil economy and, and how things are going to change how they're already changing as as the world kind of shifts away from Middle East oil and even economies that you know are not oil producing but are dependent upon that economy like Jordan, how they're going to struggle sort of without this help. The other piece that I think is important is this is a relatively integrated region that is united by language. There's a common religion in many places. The national cultures are different, but people's ability to communicate, to observe, to share is much greater in the Middle East than it is in a place like Europe, it is in a place like Africa. Arguably, you have a similar thing in Latin America, but it does seem to me that there is a more unified sense of culture that helps create cascading politics. One of the interesting things when you compare it to Latin America is that like Latin America, you have regional powers who are not part of the dominant culture. You have Brazil, which is Portuguese speaking. You have Israel, Iran, and Turkey in the Middle East. But you do have this sense of fraternalism that is deeper than you have in a place like Europe, deeper than you have in a place like Asia. Another interesting factor to maybe pay attention to in the future and, and this is obviously in part because of the consequences of the Arab Spring and, and, and the wars of the past decade. But there's a large percentage of the populations that don't live in their country anymore. So it'll be interesting to see how active the diaspora remains in their country. Um, I'm reminded, you know, it was a Rwandan boy who grew up in a, in a refugee camp in Uganda who would later lead an army to stop a genocide and, and become president of Rwanda years later. So it'll be interesting to see how how this uh, this refugee flow, how these migrants actually participate in potential reforms. So what is the legacy then of the Arab Spring? What lessons can policymakers, political leaders, and really anyone seeking change take from the experience? It seems certainly that two of the lessons people in the region have thought about is, A, what are the changes short of revolution that we can pursue? And B, how can we create an evolutionary policy so that the changes add up and accrete to represent change over time? Because the idea of sudden change not only ends up often being disruptive, but in some cases, as as Egyptians of all stripes have argued to me, you end up paying the cost, but you end up further behind from where you started. So what's the point of even doing it? For me, there, there's a couple of ways of looking at the Arab Spring, and it's sort of a glass half full, half empty scenario, if you will. And in the glass half empty version, you know, these, these new or even former politicians and presidents throughout the region 
will and, and have cracked down harder than ever before because of the Arab Spring. And this might be exacerbated by using social media as a surveillance tool. China might help with this in the future. But for me, in, in the glass half full version, there's also a new generation now that knows that some of these leaders are not necessarily invincible, as their parents may have thought. Lina Atalla, actually, who's the, the chief editor of Madda Masar, who's one of the, one of the only independ- independent media outlets in Egypt, who's also been arrested on several occasions for her work, recently said that, uh, I want to get this quote right, she said, we can't be imprisoned to the hegemony of the present. And I, and I really like that, that way of looking at it, because this is, a, this is a process, as John was mentioning. And just knowing that stagnation isn't the, the destiny of the region is, I think, empowering in and of itself. It seems to me, and, and this is a point that Natasha gestured to earlier, this is a region that is going to undergo profound social and economic change. It has a, a demographic boom where you have an increased number of young people coming out to the job markets looking for work. You are seeing a global shift away from hydrocarbons. It will take decades, but it will certainly happen in the livelihoods of young Arabs. And whether you're in a hydrocarbon exporting economy or a labor exporting economy that exports labor to hydrocarbon exporting economies, all the countries in the Middle East are going to be profoundly affected by the transition away from hydrocarbons. How successfully local governments do it, how successfully the region does it, what people do for work, what the nature of work is after what people are calling the fourth industrial revolution. I mean, this is a place that is going to be dealing with a whole series of economic and political challenges. You have technology creating a set of social pressures. So I think that to me, the, the, the key issue that the Arab Spring, the key issue that the Arab Spring highlights is the necessity for resilient societies that keeping the lid on by just repressing, I think is going to get harder and harder and harder. Some governments will still have tools. Some governments will lose the tools. But it seems to me that, that we have to think less about stability over the next 20 years and more about resilience because the external pressures are going to be growing and not diminishing. Fascinating to look back on where the Middle East came from about a decade ago, as well as where it may go still. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.